This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the special episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As this is an episode of our special series, A Seat at the Table, I'm joined by a fellow podcaster, and we are going to look at the life and career of a cabinet member. But first of all, let me introduce you to our guest. Our guest today is Jacob from the podcast on Germany. Welcome, Jacob. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here and for helping me with this special episode. But before we dive into our cabinet member's life, I wanted to give you a chance to tell our listeners who may not have experienced the podcast on Germany yet, just a little bit about your podcast and where they can find you. Sure. Uh, So the podcast on Germany is about the history of Germany. We started from the very beginning all the way, and we're going to go all the way up to the year 2000. Right now, we are dealing with the Carolingians. Uh, We just finished off a bunch of Louis, put them all in the grave all at once. It was so great to get rid of them because, let me tell you, it's so hard to keep up with each and every single Louis and remember which Louis you're talking about in the Uh, show. a, A little Louis goes a long way. (laughs) Exactly. So we are going to be going through the entire history. Uh, It's going great so far. Hopefully we'll be into the thousands here before the end of the year. Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah. And I wanted to have you on specifically because, you know, German American heritage and culture is, is such a part of American history. You know, we start to see it a little bit in the early presidencies, but it definitely picks up as time goes on. And we have more cabinet members who have German heritage. So just being able to have that linkage, you know, is is really great. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited for this. All righty. Well, let's dive in. For our listeners, I have not let Jacob know who we are going to be talking about today. So he is learning along with you that we are going to be discussing William Bradford, who was the second attorney general of the United States. So Jacob, before we dive in, and I imagine I know the answer to this, do you happen to know anything about William Bradford? Nope, not at all. Well, we will all learn more about William Bradford together because I imagine that most of our audience doesn't really know much about him either. He's not (laughs) one of those well-known figures of the Washington administration. They started as Washington got into his second term, bringing in new cabinet members to replace some of the more well-known names like Hamilton, Jefferson. He replaced him with some folks that you haven't heard quite as much about. He started to have issues with trying to find people who would accept cabinet posts. But let's dive into the life of William Bradford and help to introduce you and our audience to him. So to get us started at the beginning, William Bradford was born on September 14, 1755 in Philadelphia. Now, his early life can get a little complicated because... First of all, his father was also named William Bradford, 
And his grandfather was also named William Bradford. So have fun trying to sort out that family tree. But but his father was a printer and a publisher of the Pennsylvania Journal, which was a newspaper that he started in 1742. This paper was actually a rival to the paper put out by Benjamin Franklin. And this was a family tradition because his grandfather was also an early printer in Philadelphia who established himself after immigrating over with his wife in 1685. So the family was very much involved in printing and publishing. Now, I haven't actually been able to find a name for our William Bradford's mother. Unfortunately, that is one of those things in history. We see it often with the early presidencies. There's more information available about the fathers and the mothers. And unfortunately, this is one case that we can't, I haven't been able to put a name to his mother, but did want to acknowledge her. She had a role in this too. But his father became the official printer for the Continental Congress starting in 1774. And when the Revolutionary War began, the father, William Bradford, left his other son, Thomas, in charge of the press while he went to join the Pennsylvania militia. The elder William Bradford would fight in the Battle of Trenton and was wounded at the Battle of Princeton. Now, Thomas, so this is our William Bradford's brother, would continue with the family business, as would Thomas's son. So here we have, you know, going on, you know, four generations of folks who are involved in printing. But our William Bradford would go a little in a, in a bit of a different direction in terms of his career trajectory. So our William Bradford was educated at the Academy of Philadelphia before going on to Princeton University. Now, at Princeton, and at this point, it was known as the College of New Jersey, he actually made friends with James Madison, who is a name that that you've probably heard. Oh, yes, most definitely. (laughs) So William Bradford graduated in 1772, and he returned to Philadelphia. But rather than going into printing like his father and his grandfather, He actually read law with Edward Shippen, who was a prominent lawyer. Shippen was also a member of the Pennsylvania Provincial Council, and he later went on to become Chief Justice of Pennsylvania. But as we've seen with other cabinet members that we've covered thus far in the series, Bradford's personal plans were interrupted by this little thing called the Revolutionary War. It always gets in the way. It always gets in the way. You know, the best laid plans, and then you have the Revolutionary War. William Bradford, uh, like his father, actually signed up and joined the Pennsylvania militia in 1776. Uh, He joined as a private. And later that year, when Daniel Roberto was made the first brigadier general in the state military, he actually chose Bradford as his aide. And Bradford was later promoted to brigade major on the headquarters staff. Then he went on to join the Continental Army when his term with the militia expired. And he was actually commissioned as a captain and became a company commander in the 11th Pennsylvania Regiment. So I mentioned that his father fought in the Battle of Trenton. Well, our William Bradford did as well. So father and son were fighting at the Battle of Trenton. Our William Bradford then earned a promotion to lieutenant colonel before becoming a deputy to the Muster Master General in April 1777. And try to say that three times fast, Muster Major General. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know. When does he get to join the ketchup major general? I know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the mayonnaise master general is somewhere out there. Yeah. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, this promotion 
meant that Bradford was present for the infamous encampment at Valley Forge in the winter of 1777-1778. But Bradford made it through that, though later in 1778, he actually began to suffer from ill health to the point that he resigned his commission and returned home in early 1779. So that was the end of our William Bradford's experience in the Revolutionary War. At least he got to meet my favorite guy. Exactly. If he's at if he's at Valley Forge, he got to interact with Frederick Wilhelm von Steuben. Awesome exactly. Guy. Exactly. And and uh, well, do you want to tell us a little bit about Steuben? Sure. Uh, Steuben showed up, said that he was a uh, general uh, in the uh, Prussian army. Complete lie. Uh, he w- he had no rank. He wasn't a noble, but. Washington was desperate enough, and he's like, you know what? Sure, go ahead, train my men, and that's what he'd do. He was, he was kind of a, a peacock. He wanted to dress all European style, all that. And of course, everyone in Valley Forge just having this hard time just getting close to stay warm. And you see Friedrich walking around dressed like a peacock, and um, he never learned English, and so all of his instructions were in German, and so someone had to translate for him. So he'd tell him, like, you know, form line. And then five seconds later, the guy would figure out what he was trying to say and shout it out to the men, and they would slowly form line from there. Hilarious guy. But, you know, a part of our American history. Absolutely. And and an important part. That training was really, it, it really came at the time that we needed that, the, that the Continental Army needed that. And so he did play a major role in the Revolutionary War. And here our William Bradford is around around that time seeing this happen. And that's that's been one of the fascinating things that looking at some of these early cabinet members to see just the pivotal points of American history that these folks were around for and in some cases played a role in. So but yeah, so Bradford, that was the end of his military career. But he went home, he recovered his health, and he returned to the law. He ended up joining the bar before the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court in September 1779. And the following year, he actually became the Attorney General of the state, assuming the office on November 23rd, 1780. Now, I wasn't able to find many details about his work in this office though he would eventually serve under five governors because his tenure as attorney general of Pennsylvania lasted nearly 11 years. So whatever he was doing, apparently he was doing it quite well. Yeah. (laughs) Or at least knew the right people to stay in office. (laughs) That also comes into play all the time. (laughs) Exactly. But he wasn't always focused on his work. He actually had time to go according. And so in 1784, he married Susan Vergero Boutineau, who was the only daughter of prominent New Jersey lawyer and politician Elias Boutineau. So Bradford's new father-in-law was pretty prominent in American politics at the time. He had actually served as president of the Confederation Congress in 1782 and 1783 and would go on after ratification of the Constitution to serve as a U.S. representative from New Jersey from 1789 to 1795 before assuming office later that year as the director of the U.S. Mint. And this was a post that he held until July 1805. So, you know, here William Bradford already has this 
this family that has some connections and, and is established in the community, but definitely tying him in to somebody who is even more prominent in politics. So, and again, we've, we've seen this from time to time, you know, these, these marriages that connect families and lead folks to rise through the political ranks. So Mm -hmm. happens all the time. Exactly. Exactly. Now, though it seems like William and Susan had, you know, from from all indications that I was able to find, it seems like uh, theirs was a happy marriage. But despite that, it does not appear that they ever had children. So, you know, that's that is something that we do have some cases of from time to time. But it it is interesting, and it will come back into play later on in his life. So in 1785, Bradford was elected as a member of the American Philosophical Society, which was an organization which was originally founded in 1743 by Benjamin Franklin and others to promote knowledge in the humanities and sciences. The American Philosophical Society had many prominent members, which included George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, James McHenry, John Marshall, the Marquis de Lafayette. So this was a veritable who's who of American history in this one club. And so William Bradford was a part of it. Now, Bradford would notably argue as an attorney in the first recorded case put before the Supreme Court. So after the Constitution was ratified, after the Supreme Court was organized, he was an attorney in the first recorded case that appeared before that court. It was the case of West versus Barnes in 1791. Now, unfortunately, Bradford's client did lose that case due to a procedural issue, but it doesn't seem like it was necessarily anything that Bradford did. But that is pretty notable. And again, you know, here's this guy who is seeing so many important moments in American history, seeing these these institutions come into fruition. Exactly, yeah. As I mentioned, he was attorney general for the state of Pennsylvania for nearly 11 years, but this tenure would end when he was appointed to the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court in August 1791. Now, we do know a few more details about this period in his tenure. So during this tenure, Pennsylvania Governor Thomas Mifflin approached Bradford to ask for his assistance in coming up with a proposal to reduce the use of the death penalty in the state. His report, which was entitled An Inquiry, How Far the Punishment of Death is Necessary in Pennsylvania, actually led to reforms of the state penal code, and the use of capital punishment in Pennsylvania was significantly reduced. This reform, you know, besides just the impact on Pennsylvania, it actually served as an example for other states, which then made reforms in their states. So, this is an, an important contribution that Bradford is making to his state and and nationwide. I'm sure uh, his his work on that is still being used today uh, in court cases arguing against the death penalty. Exactly. Well, and and that's the thing. You know, we're still having debates over that even in the present day. So it's interesting to see that he was a part of this debate even that early on. But his tenure in the state's highest court would end in early 1794 when George Washington asked him to become the second attorney general. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So we actually discussed this role of the attorney general uh, when we spoke about Edmund Randolph in a previous episode of the series. Randolph, who was the first U.S. attorney general, left his post because he took over Thomas Jefferson's position at the State Department when Jefferson retired. And so you have this, this cabinet reshuffle, which ends up bringing Bradford into the cabinet. Now, Bradford's appointment was actually not viewed favorably by Democratic Republicans, as he, along with his father-in-law, were well-known staunch Federalists. Now, we see at this point, so this is 1794, by this point, there is that more firm idea of the factions. You know, this is at the point that we've already had the Hamilton versus Jefferson. We've had the Democratic-Republican societies coming up, and so... We are seeing more of factionalism and party politics coming into play. And so the fact that Bradford was taking over for Edmund Randolph, who was a bit more of the middle of the road, leaning towards the Democratic-Republican side, and here you've got a staunch Federalist coming in to replace him, Democratic-Republicans were not too happy. No, not at all. Now, I did want to read this quote from Noah Feldman's The Three Lives of James Madison, because it actually provides a little different of a view. And I I wanted to discuss that for just a second. So uh, Feldman wrote, quote, as attorney general to replace Randolph, Washington had chosen the Philadelphian William Bradford, Madison's closest friend in the years after he left college and before he entered public life. Now, perhaps, Madison could begin the process of winning Washington back to Virginia Republicanism. Now, this is vastly different. This is saying that he is more on the Democratic-Republican side, but from the other scholarship that I was able to find, it, it does seem like he was more on the Federalist side. And we'll see as we get into his tenure, it really does seem like he was more on the Federalist side. And I wondered as I read that, that maybe this could be a misunderstanding of Bradford based on the lack of scholarship on him. You know, there really isn't that much out there about Bradford and his career. And so, you know, yes, we know that he was friends with Madison, but we've seen other instances because, you know, Hamilton and Madison collaborated, but it wasn't necessarily that Madison would think that Hamilton was going to help him turn Washington back to the Democratic Republican side of things. So it does kind of reflect that, because of the sparse amount of information out there, sometimes we can leap to conclusions. But whenever we start to pull those things together, we start to see that, you know, maybe this this wasn't the way it really was. It, it does seem like Bradford was more on the Federalist side. And so I can't see Madison thinking that he would help to bring Washington back to what Madison saw as the good side. <laughs> Yeah, that is an uh, odd thing to put into the book. Uh, was there any evidence in um, his life bef- that we've discussed so far that would point him towards being Federalist versus uh, Democratic Republican? 
So it, it really doesn't, and, and part of it, and again, this is one of the issues with trying to learn more about Bradford. I haven't been able to find much information about him, but judging from, we do know more about his father-in-law. We know that they were close. So I think that's part of where it comes that, you know, he was a, a more on the Federalist side. But we also see in his approach to the attorney general position, it seemed like he was very much aligned with Hamilton and Federalist policy. So it, it really doesn't seem like he would have that had any. Yeah. Yeah. So, but again, you know, I'm always up for, you know, if anybody has any resources, if anybody knows anything about William Bradford, know of any resources to point me to, I would greatly appreciate that because Bradford actually, whenever I was doing the Washington series was one of the figures that I was interested in and really want to know more about. So if anybody knows of anything, please feel free to send it my way. Now, an advantage to having Bradford of Pennsylvania as the new attorney general has to do with the nature of the office at the time. So as we discussed in the episode with Edmund Randolph, the position of attorney general was actually a part-time position. It was vastly different than what we think of the attorney general position today. Yeah. Primarily because there was no justice department. So it was just the attorney general. The justice department did not come around until the Grant administration. So we're Oh wow. It's still a few decades in the future. The attorney general didn't even communicate necessarily with district attorneys and federal marshals, that was all run through the State Department. But the attorney general's primary roles at this time were to provide legal guidance and recommendations to the president and to the administration, as well as to argue cases before the Supreme Court that involved the federal government. Now, at this point, the Supreme Court was still getting going. There weren't as many cases rising up to that level. So there really wasn't much work for him to do in that regard. The only case that I was able to find that Bradford was involved in as attorney general was the case of United States versus Scott, which was a case involving an invalid pension being given to a Revolutionary War veteran. But that's the only case that I was able to find that he was involved in during his tenure in the cabinet. And one of the things that really makes it convenient for Bradford of Pennsylvania to be attorney general is that at this point, Philadelphia was the capital of the U.S. So that's where the federal government was based. And the attorney general was basically expected since it was a part-time position, since they got paid less than the other cabinet members. It was expected that the attorney general would carry on their own private legal practice while being attorney general. So if you had an attorney general that was from further away, that would complicate matters because they'd basically be shuffling back and forth between Philadelphia and wherever their home was to try and keep up that business. But it was convenient for Bradford to be right there. So that may have also played a role in Washington's decision to ask Bradford to join the cabinet. Now, talking about William Bradford, there is one big event that happens during his tenure as attorney general that we need to discuss. And that's a little thing called the Whiskey Rebellion. (laughs) So 
everybody always loves the Whiskey Rebellion. I mean, mm-hmm. how, how can you not? <laughs> but the Whiskey Rebellion basically started because there was an excise tax on whiskey. This was part of Hamilton's grand scheme for getting the nation's finances in order. So this excise tax on whiskey also required distillers to register with the federal government to ensure that the taxes were paid. When Bradford took office, there were still 75 distillers in Pennsylvania that had not registered. Only 15 of those were east of the mountains. So Hmm. primarily this was a Western thing. And, And that's, we've discussed this in previous episodes. We discussed this in the Washington series. In the West, whiskey was more than just an alcohol. At a time when there was poor transportation, it was hard to get crops that far. Basically, distilling the crops into whiskey made it easier to transport. And it also became a pseudo currency for them because everybody kind of knew and, and agreed upon the value of whiskey. They didn't have as much hard specie. There wasn't paper money like we think of it today. There wasn't as much currency there. So it became a currency. It fulfilled that purpose. And so with the excise tax on whiskey, it really, it, it, it hit the people in the West particularly hard, yeah. you know, much more so than, than folks in the East. And so naturally they didn't like that and were <laughs> rebelling against it. They were protesting. It it did get to armed skirmishes. You had folks gathering. You had folks, you know, proclaiming that they were going to defy the government. You had folks that thought that this was tyranny. And these are folks that, that the Revolutionary War is still very fresh in their minds. And they're like, you know, we didn't accept this from George III. We're not going to accept it from... George Washington either. So Bradford, when he came to office, you know, that this was a big problem. There were still 75 distillers in Pennsylvania that had not registered. And so Bradford worked with the U.S. District Attorney, William Rawl, to serve summons to the distillers who had not registered. Either the distillers could register when they received the summons, and that was really what they wanted, or they would have to appear in court. Hmm. Now, that seems like a, an easy thing. Well, you know, nowadays we think of courts, for the most part, being convenient, you know, not too far away. But at that time, there weren't many courts set up in the West. The problem for the distillers, and basically this was the, the stick for them, you know, we're offering you an easy out. Here's your summons. You can sign up right now. That's easy. But if you want to appear in court, you have to come to Philadelphia, all the way from Western Pennsylvania. And this was a time before, you know, planes, Easy trains, and automobiles. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so for the distillers, if they were going to appear in court, that would be hundreds of miles away. They would be away from their home for weeks, and it would mean a loss of income for them because they couldn't work while they were in transit. Naturally, they didn't take this too well. It's a little shocking, yes. It's a little shocking. And so, again, it just, you know, they're, they're feeling you are really punishing us and we haven't done anything. We're just trying to live. Why are you doing this to us? 
it exacerbated the already growing tensions in western Pennsylvania and led to what has been dubbed the Battle of Bower Hill, where 600 rebels attacked the home of the local inspector of the revenue. And, you know, here we get to this is a mob attacking a private residence. And so when word gets back to Philadelphia and to Washington and the administration, they're like, no, we are not having this. We are not doing Shays Rebellion all over again. Mm-hmm. So Washington calls out the militia. He uses a recently passed militia act that allows him to do so. He calls out the militia. But while the militia is being called up, Washington and the administration launch one final negotiation effort with the rebels. Bradford supported this move, and he was actually named on August 6th as one of the three peace commissioners to travel to the West. So Bradford and his fellow commissioners leave Philadelphia. They travel West. Bradford, you know, yes, he engages with the rebels in terms of the peace negotiations, but he actually has some other aims in mind while he's there. Really? Yes. Bradford used this opportunity to gather intelligence about the rebels and their state of readiness so that he could send it back to President Washington back in Philadelphia and the administration could be better prepared for if they needed to march out the militia to kind of know what the situation was on the ground. So it wasn't just diplomacy. He was also intelligence gathering. Mm-hmm. He, he also got some of the rebel leaders to the side while they were meeting in Brownsville, Pennsylvania, and he started trying to play the more moderate leaders against their more extreme colleagues. So on top of diplomacy and intelligence gathering, He's also kind of stirring the pot and trying to sow some discord in the leadership. So again, trying to lay the groundwork, if they need to come in with the militia, it'll be easier to go ahead and quash this rebellion. So did he truly believe in negotiating with them or was he just using that completely as a ruse? So from what I've read, he was he was skeptical. He was still open to the idea of negotiation, but he thought things had kind of gone too far. Too far to really be able to resolve this through negotiation. As noted by William Hoagland, who wrote a great book about the Whiskey Rebellion, quote, the very turmoil of the Brownsville meeting signaled that William Bradford had achieved his goals with almost perfect success. What had been a disciplined, region-wide movement against government was fatally divided. Mm. Moderates had been flushed out and exposed by the negotiations. They were vulnerable to violence, and a federal army was needed, if only to protect them. And so basically, Bradford, in sowing these seeds and engaging in this diplomacy, you had some leaders that were saying, you know, Maybe we have gone a little bit too far. Let's see what we can work out. And the more radical leaders are like, well, you're betraying our cause and start turning against them. And so here you you have a division in the ranks. You don't have this unified force anymore. And it also provides a pretext. Well, these folks in the area are threatened. So we need to get some forces in to protect them as well as to shut this down. So naturally, the negotiations went nowhere, and Bradford went back to Philadelphia. Then the militia 
this is one of those interesting points of the Washington presidency because President Washington, as we discussed in the episode with Alexander Hamilton, Washington and Hamilton led the troops, led the militia out to Western Pennsylvania to take on the Whiskey Rebels. When they got there, again, we kind of discussed this in the uh, Hamilton episode and in the Washington presidency series. When they got there, basically, folks started to realize, oh, there's an actual army coming to (laughs) take us out. And George Washington, you know, the George Washington is at the head of it. Maybe we need to do a rethink. And so when they got there, there basically was nobody to fight. Everybody had scattered. You know what? We're good. We're good. Just we're good. Washington stayed for a little bit, but then went back to Philadelphia because you know, he was still president. He had a few yeah, things had to duties do. duties to do. You know. Exactly. Exactly. But of course, as Washington did many times, he turned to Hamilton. Hamilton, you just take care of this. <laughs> You know, you you deal with this. You 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 wrap this up. And so Bradford worked with Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton in attempting to prosecute Democratic Republican political leaders like Albert Gallatin. Naturally, and, exactly. You know that they and and even though these weren't necessarily leaders in the rebellion, Hamilton and Bradford saw this as an opportunity. They have been, you know, critical of the administration. Maybe they did contribute to this. Can we can we work that angle? Can we somehow prosecute them as well? William Hoagland, in his assessment of this effort to prosecute on charges of treason, charged Bradford with, quote, incompetently ignoring guiltier parties, which would have made good examples. Mm-hmm. So basically, you know, Hoagland said. Bradford and Hamilton were so focused on these big leaders with not much evidence that they were actually engaged in treasonous acts. Meanwhile, there are these people who really, you you could argue, were engaged in treasonous acts, but because they were not as well known, okay, well, we're going to focus our efforts on the prominent names. And that is a problem. And we will need to discuss that when we get to the end of this and start evaluating his career, because I I think this is an important thing to discuss. Now, one of the things that happened at the end of Bradford's tenure, and the date is going to tell you that his tenure did not last too long, but one of the things that happened at the end of his tenure was Edmund Randolph's resignation as Secretary of State on August 20th, 1795. And we discussed this in Randolph's episode, uh, basically just in, in a nutshell, it was found out through dispatches from the French minister to the U.S. that Randolph had been kind of engaged in private conversations and probably indiscreet conversations with him about the Whiskey Rebellion, the language that was used in the dispatches could be interpreted or, you know, twisted by people who may have a political gain to say that, you know, this Randolph guy, there's something funny going on. We need to do something about this. And Bradford was actually consulted by Secretary of War Timothy Pickering and Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott. So at this point, Hamilton had left the Treasury Department. Walcott had taken over for him. 
So he was consulted by Pickering and Walcott when they obtained the Fauché dispatches, the dispatches from the French minister to the U.S. So he he looked at these and he agreed with Pickering and Walcott because at that point, Washington was back at Mount Vernon. And so Bradford agreed that Washington should come back, deal with this. And it was also the same time that there was a debate over the Jay Treaty and whether Washington should accept it and sign it. And Randolph at that point was arguing against, everybody else in the cabinet was arguing for, and Mm. Bradford was on the side that said, we need the Jay Treaty. And that's one of the things that besides his efforts in the Whiskey Rebellion, we also see in the support of the Jay Treaty that was very much a partisan issue. Federalists were all for the Jay Treaty, even though, you know, it could have been better, but we just need to be at peace with Britain. Democratic Republicans staunchly opposed to it, felt that it was wrong. It gave up too much to Britain. Bradford is solidly on the we need the Jay Treaty side. Yeah. So. And Washington would ultimately agree and sign the Jay Treaty. It happened rather abruptly around the time of the the Randolph scandal. And so that's led some folks to believe that, you know, Pickering and Walcott may have used this to kind of say, you know, this guy's been arguing against the Jay Treaty. Do you really want to trust him and kind of help to push him to that side? He probably would have done it anyway, but they have more ammunition to throw at him. Exactly. Now, Around the same time, so they did consult with Bradford, but on August 17th, 1795, Bradford wrote to Secretary Walcott informing him that he had fallen ill a couple of days back. On August 23rd, Bradford died from yellow fever. He was a month shy of his 40th birthday. Is this during the uh, great uh, yellow fever pandemic in Pennsylvania? So it's actually, and that's the thing, and, and with the yellow fever epidemics, So there was the great one back in 1792, I believe it was, because I know Hamilton was still in the cabinet. He contracted yellow fever, him and his wife, and managed to recover. But I believe that was 1792. But there were subsequent epidemics for the next decade or so that the capital was there. There was actually a time during John Adams's presidency that they had to temporarily relocate to Trenton, New Jersey to be able to keep up the affairs of government while Congress was out of session. And it was because there was a yellow fever outbreak and they needed to get out of Philadelphia. Yeah, Philadelphia was not the place to be in the summers of the late 1700s. (laughs) No, it wasn't. And if you've been to Philadelphia during the summer, you understand why and you're very thankful that we understand yellow fever and have many more tools to help us through the hot months of the summer. (laughs) (laughs) But unfortunately, you know, William Bradford, even though he was still relatively young, even for that time, he didn't recover. Hmm. So after William's death, and, and again, this is where it comes in that, you know, William and Susan didn't have children because it was just her. She went ahead and moved back in with her parents after William's death. And, Susan went on to work on editing her father's papers. So, you know, again, prominent politician, prominent leader. She worked on editing his papers, which were eventually donated to what became Princeton University. 
Her mother, Hannah, passed away in 1808, and her father lived on until 1821, so well after Bradford's death. And Susan died in 1854, so many decades after her husband passed away. She died at the age of 89 and is buried alongside her husband in the churchyard at St. Mary's Episcopal in Burlington, New Jersey. Bradford is also remembered through a cenotaph, or a monument, which was put up in his honor at his family's burial plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia. And when a new county was being established in eastern Pennsylvania in 1810 from parts of two other counties, it was originally named Ontario County, but a couple of years later, it was renamed Bradford County after this William Bradford. And there is a separate city of Bradford in another county in western Pennsylvania, but it doesn't appear that it was named after this Bradford. And especially after the whole Whiskey Rebellion thing, I, I, don't, think, yeah. I don't think they'd be naming cities after him. <laughs> <laughs> but that is the life of William Bradford. So initial thoughts before we start examining his life and career? Yeah, so uh, he seems to be always right underneath um, the the big moves and uh, the historical uh, events happening in uh, in that time period. Because I mean, that's an important time period for America, and he's always he's involved. He's just not he's not one of the leaders of the movements. He's just like he's part of the groups uh, surrounding those leaders. Uh, it seems exactly. like. Uh, and it it's sad for him that his life got cut uh, short, especially considering, I mean, his wife outdistanced him for, what, 40 years at least? Yeah. Um, so uh, having his life cut short um, was rough for him. But he also seems to be very much a political man, more than a um, man of his own conscience when he was ruling. Or not ruling, but when he was in... Um, the cabinet. He was definitely more following the politics of his uh, party than his own ideas. Absolutely. And and I think that's a perfect segue to our first category, which is the whole picture. So this category looks at the overall career and character of the cabinet member. And um, when we get, you know, we, we can each award up to 10 points in this category. But I think I think Jacob, you make some really good points there. You know, he's he is very much involved. You know, he's involved in the Revolutionary War. He's involved in Pennsylvania state government, politics, the the bar, and he rises to the federal level. You know, he becomes Attorney General, and he plays a role in the Washington administration, but. It does seem like it's more of a follower role. You know, he, he, he's somebody that you can turn to and that, that can really help. You know, that obviously Washington felt that he was trustworthy enough to send him as one of his three agents to Western Pennsylvania during the, the Whiskey Rebellion. But, you know, he, how much is he really leading things? And would that have changed had he lived longer? Would he have taken another role in the Washington administration? We we have no way of knowing. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, the 
with his life cut short, especially considering um, how the Federalists uh, will change over time, it would have been interesting to see uh, where he would have ended up um, when, once we get the, uh, the parties evolving uh, into their new forms as time goes by. Um, but yeah, o- overall, I, I'd, you know, I'd argue, you know, he, he is part of things, but he's never taken the leading role. He's never, uh, we don't, I mean, as, as one historian, uh, note, uh, shows in your research, we can't even be a hundred percent sure about his politics all the time. Like that one guy mm-hmm. was clearly saying that he was Democrat Republican when all the other sources are claiming he's Federalist. He's just, uh, it's hard to get, uh, form an opinion around a man who's just, uh, always the follower and not the leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that also gets to the point, you know, there's so little written about him. There's so little research on him and his career. And while that, on the one hand, you want to say, oh, well, you know, maybe his papers, uh, I, I haven't found where there were a collection of his papers somewhere, but hope, you know, maybe there are and just scholars haven't dug into them yet. I would think that if they were there, somebody would have by now, but um, it also kind of speaks to, you know, the, the lack of an impact that he had in his career um, that there isn't more about him, that he isn't as well known or really studied during this time that, that other figures are very well documented and researched and and discussed. So um, in terms of ranking him, what are your thoughts? I uh, For uh, the whole picture uh, ranking, I would probably put him middle of the road. Um, he's going to lose points because he's not a leader. Um, his, his role in the Whiskey Rebellion um, I, and does not bode well for his character. But he still, he still is a part of, uh, he's still part of uh, the cabinet. He still is being involved in things and we can't take away from him his role in the death penalty. Uh, Cause that is probably the, the high mark of his life. Or, uh, even though he probably wouldn't have considered it at the time, but for us, that is the most impact he has had and on American history. And that's something we can't take away from. So I'd probably give him uh, six points uh, out of 10. And I'm going to go a little lower. I'm going to give him a four. And it, it's mainly because I I know with other cabinet members that are coming up that that really have that those impactful careers. And and I, I think and I think you make a great point, you know, he definitely had an impact and and that that portion with the, the death penalty is a great impact that isn't as well known or, or well discussed, but there wasn't really much to work with in terms of, you know, what impact he had versus just kind of being there and, and doing what needed to be done, but really being more of a follower. Mm-hmm. And so now kind of zooming in to his career in the cabinet 
uh, we get to our go-getter round. And this category looks at the impact of the cabinet member during their time in the cabinet. I would say straight off the bat, just with the name of the category, you we can already say he is not getting many points in this one. He is not a go-getter in, in the cabinet. Uh, he is following along the uh, the party lines. He's he's there to um, fill a hole, really, for Washington. He's convenient. I mean, you even said, basically, because he was already in Philadelphia, he was convenient to be the attorney general because, you know, mm-hmm. he, he didn't have to go home to do his business. He was at home. So um, for, for me, just initially, he's going to get lower points in this category than the whole picture. Absolutely. And, and part of it gets to the nature of the attorney general position at the time, because it was this part-time position, because unlike the other cabinet members, he didn't necessarily have a department that he was in charge of. It does kind of, it, it makes it more difficult to have the impact that, you know, a secretary of the, the treasury who has tons of employees under them, um, the Secretary of State that is in communication with all the the diplomats across the you know well at that point it was more you know in Europe but eventually across the globe it's it's difficult to have an impact. That being said, even in these early days and even you know as we saw in the the Edmund Randolph episode, an Attorney General could have an a great impact. Uh, Randolph during his tenure as attorney general became kind of a, a, a middle ground. He became, he was, he at least served Washington in kind of this um, relatable role and, and commiseratory role while the rest of the cabinet, you know, Hamilton and Jefferson were going at it and he was able to, to help Washington think that through. And so he did have a sizable impact that we just don't see Bradford having. He, in, as, as I was studying him during the Washington presidency series, and as time goes on in the Washington presidency, he just doesn't have, Washington didn't have those close relations with cabinet members like he did some of his earlier cabinet members. And so he didn't have that that great of an impact, even though, and and we've got some other attorney attorneys general coming up that will have a larger impact and and really be those trusted advisors that presidents turn to, even in this part time role. So there is a potential in that role to have a great impact, and we just don't see Bradford doing that. Yeah, he doesn't take advantage of it because even even though it is a minor role in cabinet, it's still a role in cabinet. Mm. Uh, it's still a position of some authority, and uh, he treats it as a, a typical uh, job rather than a position to use in order to e- either further uh, the betterment for the country, or as some cabinet members will probably do, f- further betterment for themselves. Exactly. So what are you thinking in terms of the ranking? Uh, so for uh, this this go-getter, I'm going to give him um, 
two points just because I'm being nice. Uh, he, he doesn't have much of impact. Uh, his, his biggest impact is going to be on that whiskey rebellion. Uh, and I'm not a huge fan of what he, he did during that. So it's not, uh, exactly great impact for me. Um, exactly. And so, yeah. And we'll have a, a chance to talk about that in just a moment. I'm going to agree with you and, um, see your two points because, and again, like you said, you know, it just, it just doesn't seem like, you know, here you're, you have the ear of the president, you have the ear of the other cabinet members, you have this seat at the table and he just doesn't seem to have done much with it to have made that great of an impact. He did the job. He did it well. He doesn't seem to have used it for his personal benefit, which will help him in our next category. But still, he just did not seem to make that big of an impact on the cabinet, on the administration, on the role. So I, I think two points is, is being, is fair for him. So that gets us to our next category, which is the hot seat. Now, this round discusses any disgraceful behavior of or actions committed by the cabinet member, and it doesn't necessarily have to be during their tenure of office in the cabinet, although, you know, that is something to discuss as well. Now, in this category, we'll be awarding up to 10 points as well, but instead of adding to, it will be taking away from. So it will be negative points that we'll be awarding. And so, so what are right. what are some of your initial thoughts? Uh, so he's definitely going to lose some points for me uh, in his role in the Whiskey Rebellion. He goes in there, he is trying to, uh, they're, they're trying to negotiate uh, and bring things to a, a peaceful end. And he is using these negotiations to uh, destabilize uh, uh, these f- uh, farmers, these uh, Western Pennsylvanians, his own statesmen, who basically have been handed a really, really uh, crappy hand by their government. Um, the, these people have been relying on whiskey to be the currency, to uh, provide uh, some sort of stability to the region. And the state, uh, the, the federal government has used that against them, has put this giant tax on them, and then hasn't been working with them to... Uh, uh, figure out a solution, and this is the f- uh, this is an attempt to finally find that solution. And he's using that to uh, turn the rebellion against itself and dismantle it from within. Uh, so I see him losing points for his role in that. Absolutely, and and likewise, you know the the prosecutions that they tried to pursue against folks like Albert Gallatin, who weren't ri- ringleaders in the rebellion, but were political enemies that they were, you know, Bradford and Hamilton were seeing this as an opportunity for political gain. You know, that's, that's pretty disgraceful. You know, it's taking advantage of a situation for political gain. And so naturally we have to, we have to judge that, you know, we have to include that in this conversation and to your point, you know, this was a situation, the, the whole Whiskey Rebellion, if Hamilton and the administration initially would have understood the impact or, or listened when 
you have citizens saying, you know, this is hurting our economy. This is, this is really impacting us negatively. If they would have listened, if they would have tried to find some other means, but it reflects and in particular with Hamilton. And and we did discuss this in his episode that, you know, he, he really has this, this vision, but it doesn't necessarily take everybody into consideration. Mm -hmm. And, and that becomes a problem. You know, these were people just trying to live and, and we'll see other instances of, you know, uprisings like this, similar things, just not really being mindful of the impacts and then using whatever means necessary to quell these uprisings, you know, and, and to be fair, you know, we, it, it, we can't, the, the cabinet has a responsibility to help to, you know, ensure law and order. But we also have to ask ourselves, you know, did this have to get to this point and did the ends justify the means? But yeah, for, for me, especially, you know, using the, the, this opportunity for, to attack some political enemies, that, that's, that's an ethical issue. So what are you thinking in terms of points to take away from Bradford? Uh, so he's going to lose, um, uh, for me, I would uh, give him uh, minus two, at least, uh, maybe even minus three, uh, for his uh, false pretenses uh, negotiations. Uh, and then uh, I give him an overall another minus two uh, for his um, focus on uh, politics and uh, supporting uh, the fireless over uh, doing uh, doing what is right, uh, focusing on the law and those who have broken it, uh, rather than those that are uh, uh, targets for your party. Uh, and so I, I'd say overall he loses uh, uh, five points for me uh, for his actions uh, involving the political parties and the uh, whiskey rebellion. Absolutely, and I, I think I'm going to go a bit lower, um, just because I think that. That that really that that seems about good. I am going to go ahead and take off. I'll take off two points because I really and for me the big issue is that you know looking at this domestic issue, this this judicial issue as an opportunity for political gain, and that's just. Uh, you know, he, he has to have some points taken off for that. So, um, that gets him a negative seven in that category. So we're taking away seven points, but he still has an opportunity to score a few more points. So first of all, we give, we reward some points based on the tenure of office. Now, this is the entire time that a cabinet member served in a full-time capacity. Um, it does not include if they were an acting cabinet member. Um, it, it doesn't include if they, if they um, were serving in two or more full-time positions at the same time. Um, we don't double that. We just count it as one. Um, 
Bradford didn't have that situation, but we will have some cabinet members coming up that do. So that will come into play. But for Bradford, his tenure of office was January 27th, 1794 to August 23rd, 1795. And so that rounds out to two points for Bradford. So he gets an additional two points. And then we have our bonus point round. So, um, cabinet member can get a bonus point if they served in more than one full-time cabinet position. They can get a bonus point if the cabinet member served in more than one presidential administration as a full-time cabinet member, which it could be in the same role or a different role. And one bonus point could be awarded if the cabinet member became president. Now, as we've seen, Bradford does not meet any of those criteria, so he doesn't get any of our bonus points, unfortunately, at least unfortunately for him. So when we total up the points that we awarded, the points that we took away, that leaves Bradford with nine points total. <laughs> oh, Bradford. And this is out of, what is the uh, total amount that he could have had? So, and I was trying to figure that out whenever I began this. So with the first three categories, they could get up to 60 points and then it becomes, you know, three more potential for the bonus points. Tenure of office, you know, it, it uh, the longest was, I believe, 12 years. So yeah, this, this is not a good total for William Bradford. No, not at all. But I, I think that, you know, and, and as we ask our last question, I think this also gets to kind of an explanation of, of why he's at nine points, um, because we do have to still ask ourselves, with all that I've shared about this individual's life and career and what we've discussed, Jacob, do you think that this cabinet member is notable enough or impactful enough to earn a seat at the table of the cabinet all-stars? Oh, most definitely not. <laughs> um. <laughs> He, he did uh, his impact while in cabinet um, is very minimal. It's just a job for him. Uh, it's to further his uh, politics rather than uh, to uh, further his ideas or uh, promote unity or anything like that. Uh, he's not notable at all. Uh, no offense to the guy. Uh, he dies way too young uh, to have made an impact later on after the establishment of uh, this new government and all that. And his involvement in the early part of the government is so minuscule that uh, he's just he can't break out uh, of the ranks. And it doesn't help that the ranks include Washington, Hamilton, Jefferson, Adams, all these big movers and shakers who are above him um, in their uh, uh, notableness and their impactfulness. Uh, so he's always going to be below them uh, when it comes to that. I, I mean, it's great to live in the time when you can meet these guys, but it also means that any of your uh, own activities are going to be dwarfed by them. Uh, so there's always that catch 22 when you uh, get to meet someone famous. Uh, but even with that in mind, he's still, even if, you know, he lived uh, during a time period where there's not much going on in American history that's uh, people would instantly focus on. He still didn't do much that would make him uh, stand out. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and that was the thing, you know, as I was 
going through the Washington presidency series, he he kept popping up and I wanted to know more and to really get a sense of his role. And this has been a great opportunity for me to pull together what I was able to find on him and to have that examination. And, you know, while, you know, to your point, he, he served in roles. It seems like he by and large served in them, in them. Well, uh, he was involved in the party. He was involved in some of the work. It just doesn't seem like he personally had that great of an impact. He didn't, you know, you have a point where you've got other folks, Hamilton, Jefferson, Madison, um, John Marshall, you know, you have these other figures who even in their early lives, even in their early careers were making sizable impacts and Bradford just kind of, he, he's just there. He, he does what he needs to, but he's not one of those go-getters. He's not somebody who, you know, really takes the lead and, and runs with it. So I, I, I agree with that. I think that unfortunately he does not get a seat at the table, but I think that, and I hope our audience agrees that this was interesting to examine his life and to see the perspective of somebody who was present for so much in these, these big moments in American history and presidential history to that, to see it from that perspective, because I think that's also a fascinating thing about history is to imagine what folks must have felt like that weren't necessarily directly involved in the goings on, what, you know, how they would approach it and how it would impact them. So from that perspective, I think that this was really fascinating and a good opportunity to, to explore a lesser known cabinet member. I agree. And just because, you know, they don't have the impact uh, of those around them doesn't mean they don't deserve to be studied and uh, be learned more about. Um, I mean, we've, as you've found in your research, there's needs to be more work done on this guy just so we can get his story straight and uh, especially figure out uh, his uh, early life, uh, which has a lot of holes in it right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on this journey through William Bradford's life. And for our listeners, I will be posting information about the podcast on Germany around the release of this episode. So please be sure to check out the podcast on Germany, wherever fine podcasts can be found. So thank you so much. My pleasure. And I just want to uh, let your listeners know, if y'all would love to learn more about German Americans, uh, I did an uh, episode um, uh, last, uh, a couple months ago now, um, that looked at how uh, we went from having one of the largest immigrant communities, being Germans, to them disappearing overnight in a matter of a decade. Uh, it was a rather fascinating episode in early 1900s U.S. history. Uh, I think your listeners would just absolutely love. Absolutely.
Absolutely. Because, and again, that's, we will be getting to that at some point in that part of presidential history. And it, you know, the, it was one of those times that, you know, you have this major shift in culture and society and the impacts of that, that resonate even to the present day. Yeah. All thanks to bloody, bloody, bloody Wilson, who is ranked among my least favorite of the presidents. <laughs> and I don't think you're alone in that. And I, I tend to agree. <laughs> <laughs> but for now, I thank all of you for listening. I thank Jacob for his time. I'd also like to thank our audio editor for this episode, Alex Van Rose. His quality work allows me to produce more content to share with all of you. If you'd like to get Alex's assistance with your podcast or next audio project, you can find him on Fiverr, that's with two R's at the end, as Alexander Rose's All One Word. With that, and until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.